Welcome to the Energy Intelligence Podcast and to the latest installment of our series focused on competitive intelligence in the energy sector. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm the Deputy Editor of Energy Intelligence Finance. Today, we're going to dig into our outlook for 2021, which was published this month. You can find it on our website, energyintel.com. But we're going to touch on some of the highlights from a high-level corporate perspective today, which will hopefully make you want to go out and check out the whole thing. So here with me to discuss the outlook today are Casey Merriman, the head of our competitive intelligence service. Happy 2021, Casey. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going all right. And uh, Noah Brenner, our executive editor of operations. Hey, Noah. Hi, Luke. How are you? I'm just great. Okay. So this outlook covers a lot of ground across several uh, of our focus areas. But for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to just stick to the competitive intelligence section mostly as I mentioned. However, we should maybe start with a topic that has really caught a lot of people's attention in recent days, and that is the geopolitical risk posed by the new administration of U.S. President Joe Biden. As most listeners will probably know by now, Biden has wasted no time in his first weeks in office getting to work on his climate agenda. And what that has meant early on is some pretty aggressive action that figures to make life more difficult for oil and gas companies. Um, So from a domestic perspective, the the moves that seem to be making the the biggest waves are Biden's slowing of oil and gas permitting and his indefinite suspension of leasing of federal land and in the Gulf of Mexico. So let's just talk for a minute about what the corporate impacts of these moves could be in in, in the short term and the medium term, I guess. So Casey, how is industry reacting to these moves? And is it really as big a deal as it's kind of being made out to be? Yeah, and I think that the kind of the answer is yes and no. So on, on kind of both questions. So on the kind of the corporate impacts in the immediate term, uh, it, it there will be very little impact, right? Um, there has been talk uh, kind of throughout Biden's campaign of some sort of potential pause, freeze, review, uh, you know, of leases and, and even potentially permitting. And so we did see kind of leading up. Uh, to his inauguration, a stockpiling of drilling permits, um, you know, stockpiling of leases when available, kind of preparing for anything, a bridge of sorts if needed. And the the Biden administration uh, has been clear in its uh, various announcements and orders that by and large existing operations are not affected or you know they're not they're not the main target of of their action and so you know because of that you know by and large companies will be able to operate normally in the coming you know weeks and months however that doesn't mean that the industry is not reacting strongly. Uh, but what's been kind of interesting is a little bit of a dichotomy in that response, that kind of the company level, right? We've heard uh, management teams almost kind of downplay it in the sense of, hey, look, you know, we got ahead of this. You know, look at our diversified portfolio. You know, we, we can do things to limit our exposure. We, we're prepared, you know, nothing to worry about given what we have seen so far. But you've seen industry groups come out very strongly, right? Because what they're essentially concerned about is not necessarily these moves per se, 
but what does it signal about what might come, right? I mean, um, maybe permitting and leasing comes back, but maybe under very different terms, right? Maybe fiscal terms become, you know, a lot more challenging or an environmental review process becomes a lot more onerous and it slows things down. And so from kind of the wider industry lens, there, there's a lot of concern um, seeping out there about, you know, what this portends for the administration's, you know, next moves. Well, and we're talking about an administration that, um, you know, uh, Kamala Harris had mentioned banning fracking uh, during the primaries, and, and that's been something that had dogged uh, the Biden campaign and that he, I believe, more strongly addressed or more directly addressed. But, I mean, the industry itself kind of can't shake that um, that fear that, that, you know, there are moves on the horizon that perhaps could have more impact kind of on day-to-day operations. I mean, I do think another area that was getting um, some interest and, and some attention was, uh, you know, this, this idea that he would seek to get rid of the quote-unquote subsidies that are enjoyed by the oil and gas industry. Whether or not these are subsidies is, is of course, a, a matter of opinion. Um, but those are also going to require some additional actions in some cases. And so I think that, you know, in some areas, the rhetoric, um, you know, it, he may not be able to do absolutely everything that he's, he's trying to do. Um, and that's something to kind of keep in mind as well. Yeah, but I you know I think one thing though that is kind of been telling though about this kind of almost like strong start is just from kind of an internal perspective when when our you know oil, say oil markets team right has kind of looked at what this might mean for U.S. oil production. I mean, for now our base case is still you know that more or less you know domestic oil output is going to be kind of stable for the next. Uh, it will stabilize this year and will kind of remain stable for the next coming years, but. You know, we've we've kind of have brought up our downside scenario, right? Which would be about four hundred thousand barrels a day less production next year if the administration really kind of is able to, you know, make t- tweaks here, do some kind of soft moves here and there that maybe don't have some of the legal challenges, but but are able to kind of maybe be a lot more disruptive um, than than it may seem to be the case today. Mm-hmm. Well, and the the U.S. shale business is kind of uniquely. Um, perhaps exposed to some of these moves just in that, um, you know, being short cycled, drilling a lot of wells. I mean, they, the U.S. business chews through inventory, uh, the unconventional business chews through inventory and acreage in a way that that conventional uh, producers don't. Uh, and so there are, you know, there's always kind of this need to to add to make sure that you've got you've got the running room that investors are looking for. Yeah. Well, we could probably fill a whole podcast talking about this and we didn't even touch on the whole, you know, Keystone XL cancellation and the implications of that. But we're going to have to save that for another day as we move on into this broader outlook. Um, So um, I guess when we're looking at this 2021 outlook, I think it makes sense to to start with investment levels and what we're what we're seeing for the next 12 months or so. Um, we're obviously coming out of an exceptionally challenging year for the energy industry um, with hopes that 2021 will see something of a return to normalcy, whatever that means. Um, but as far as the spending habits of upstream companies, what kinds of trends are we expecting to see in, in 2021? Well, I think our house view is that spending will continue to decline. Um, you know, we had estimated uh, roughly global capex of upstream capex of around 370 billion, I believe, in 2020. 
We see that dropping to about 345 billion in 2021. And you know, generally that's been borne out by some of the initial announcements from the the larger companies. I mean, we've seen the likes of, well, I mean, most famously maybe Exxon uh, further rating in spending, but we're seeing continued not just capital discipline, but um, but really kind of um, focus on on efficient operations uh, from all the major companies. And I think we will see. You know, even with this uptick, you know, Casey, I'd be interested in, in hearing your thoughts around what what we might be hearing, kind of from the independent sector going ahead. But I mean, I don't see companies enthusiastically, um, you know, rushing to to allocate this this additional cash flow from higher prices to to the drill bit. Um, it seems instead that they've been quite conservative in terms of of applying it to the balance sheet or or talking about ways that they can get it back to shareholders. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think one of the things that maybe wasn't quite appreciated in the moment is, you know, what we saw last year was obviously unprecedented in terms of the the degree, the the, the magnitude of the the down cycle and the pressure that it put on companies and really, you know, what what uh, you know producers had to do, especially say short cycle, you know, producers like in US shale, is try to just truly like get to a point where they could survive, right? Where they're they're managing a very high decline resource base and they're just trying to find a price that they can almost just put a floor under things and, and have, you know, their production just not run away from them and just have, you know, kind of their, their cash flow base fall apart. And so what we what we heard you know, kind of late last year was companies being able to promise that, right? Like, look, if, if prices are, you know, $40 or whatever next year, like we can stabilize, we can, we can get to the other side of this. So what you've seen now that prices do appear to kind of have moved that floor up is not, not necessarily cheering and wanting to run and, and drill themselves back into lower prices, it's actually kind of more relief, right? A little bit more space under the collar where they're saying, okay, well, now we can definitely say we can not only just stabilize for the most immediate term and survive, but, you know, we can start rethinking how to stock our drilling inventories. We can manage our reserves better for the medium term. You know, it's almost just kind of actually um, making those decisions that allow them to kind of more functionally sustain for more than just a highly stressful period. So absolutely the expectation is any incremental cash, you know, goes to debt, it goes to shareholders, it goes to just a little bit of breathing room because, we, you know, we have to remember we're not out of the woods yet. OPEC plus is holding over 7 million barrels a day of oil off the market, right? So it's still a very tenuous recovery and it does appear um, not that, um, haven't seen producers act against their own interests in the past that it is going to hold better this time. Yeah, no, and I think it's important to keep in mind just that, you know, uh, given cost cutting, given technological advances, you know, a dollar does go further today than it does than it did, say, five years ago. But at the same point, I mean, with the magnitude of the decline that we've seen in spending, um, you know, the, there will be there will have to be some impacts um, on the production side of things eventually. So. And I guess just to bring it back, I, I mean, is there any sense at this point that um, some of these new U.S. policies could impact where companies choose to deploy capital? Or I mean, I guess another way to ask it, uh, you know, we talk a lot about advantaged resources and and that's kind of the preferred place to spend money. But I mean, has the definition or classification of advantage assets changed much now in the Biden era? 
Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And um, actually, we kind of did some some work, you know, second half of last year, trying to really define, okay, when we talk about advantaged barrels or BTUs, right, you know, what are some of those characteristics? And it's, you know, low costs, both from a, a capital standpoint and ongoing standpoint, you know, big prolific resources um, that are highly productive. It can be, um, you know, low ab above ground risk, favorable fiscal terms, you know, access to infrastructure. There's, you know, right, there's all these kind of things that can come together to, to make a resource kind of seen as resilient. And the U.S. has a number of those, right? I mean, in the, the offshore in particular, um, because of its maturity, you know, tiebacks and things of that sort um, are a lot of low-hanging fruit that, that really can work within an austere kind of capital environment. And, and absolutely, though, when we were talking about it, we're like, well, wait, you know, historically, you would always check low above ground risk right for for those assets um can we really do that anymore and i think it's very clear that that calculus has changed uh, it doesn't mean um you know that that it's it's broken suddenly you know that's not what what we're looking at just yet but um it absolutely does kind of change you know especially as we get kind of more and more clarity i think around uh how much capital you're really want wanting or thinking you can commit medium term to a region you know no I, I'm, I'm curious if you you know what you think that might mean in terms of you know what what the companies who are there might do i mean in some cases we're still talking about very large diversified companies right they they, they move somewhere else but you know there's a lot of yeah, plays I mean, I there <laughs> exactly i you know i was thinking back to that record-breaking uh new mexico blm lease sale when we mm -hmm. saw um some some pretty small U.S. shale players lay out some pretty huge sums. I mean, really, honestly, there were record-breaking sums um, for leases on the New Mexico side of the Permian Basin. I mean, those leases are, are you know, right on fairway for some of the most productive um, tight oil, you know, some of the best rock in the U.S. for sure. Um, but if they didn't come at it with a, you know, a proactive strategy of getting, getting permits and things in advance, um, you know, I'm not sure where that would leave them now. Now, I think they did. I mean, I think companies went into this knowing that there could be a shift uh, in the politics. But at the same point, that doesn't always, you know, there's there sometimes maybe only so much you can do. And I think in those cases, you know, they're going to have to, hopefully they had their ducks in a row and drill what they can, um, you know, moderate growth and potentially look to, you know, flip into that maintenance type of, of spending that you pointed out earlier on in, a, in our discussion. And, and potentially wait for, for things to change. But I mean, I do think there's, uh, there's a danger in thinking that, that the pendulum will necessarily swing quickly. Um, I mean, what we've seen and what we've highlighted in our work really in the US and, and globally is, is this momentum around climate is, is gaining. Um, it's gaining traction. And it's not just a, um, an environmental or a, a social justice or you know, any kind of sort of one specific um, set of actors that's pushing it. I mean, we're seeing the likes of BlackRock get behind um, some some really much more aggressive ESG types of policies. And and so I don't think that it's, you know, we're not going to be going back to, to business as usual. Okay, let's move on to consolidation. It's always a hot topic in the energy industry and with everything currently affecting the, the, the sector, you know, on a macro level this year probably will be no exception. And 2020, of course, turned out to be a much more active year for M&A than 
some of us may have been expecting, maybe some of us on this very podcast. But uh, what uh, what do we see as the outlook for M and A this year? And should we be thinking of M and A separately from you know smaller sort of asset level A and D type deals? Just kind of that general consolidation. Yeah, I mean, I was surprised by some of the M and I will count myself as one of those people who was a bit more um, pessimistic about the outlook for M and A at the end of last year. Um, and so, sure, I, I was a bit surprised. I mean, as we see oil prices rise. Um, you know that can have two. It can have both positive and negative impacts on on the ability to for two parties to get together on a deal. Um, you know, certainly in the case of some of the corporate level stuff, this this oil price increase has maybe bailed out some companies that uh, might have been in much dire, much more dire straits previously. Um, on the other hand, too, though, I mean, it's it's easier to get a deal done when when your buyer sees a, a kind of a light at the end of the tunnel, maybe on prices, and if they are bullish on. On price, and and we have seen some better share price performance that might open up um, some arbitrage opportunities for all stock deals. I mean, I think that you know, M and A in many ways is kind of that that thing that there's there, there's always arguments for and against, and in some cases it comes really down even to just personalities and and the ability of of boards to to get together on things. But um, it's certainly a different setup than we've seen um, you know over the past say twelve to eighteen months. I think. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, if you kind of look at that um, on kind of the smaller A&D side, like you mentioned, Luke, I mean, there, that that has some kind of bigger structural kind of headwinds, if you will. I mean, generally speaking, because of the recent price increase and kind of a broader just view that the worst of the downturn is behind us, that can help right? Buyers and sellers just kind of talk about price, right? And it's, uh, it can be very difficult to negotiate um, in periods of high volatility, right? Because those bid-ask spreads become very wide. But uh, the number of assets that companies or have already put on the market, would like to get on the market, would like to put back on the market is just way above and beyond the the mar- the the buyers that are out there, right? I mean, everyone is trying to move to those advantaged assets that we talked about earlier. Everyone is looking for portfolio resiliency and has redefined that based on the experience of the past year. Um, Everyone is looking to be leaner and you know, raise capital to advance other strategic goals. And so, um, you know, the the buyers just are not there in the way that they have been before. You know, things like groups like private equity, it's just, there's just not tons of capital just, you know, floating around looking for upstream assets. And so uh, we, we do think that while there's a little bit of breathing room and in, in, in some assets will go, that overall the market does become challenged because there's just a, an imbalance there and there just isn't the capital that, that there once was. Um, and so, you know, I think companies are really going to have to make some decisions on just how committed they are to parting with an asset, you know, because uh, it's strategically better for them um, and just accepting maybe a, a lesser price than maybe they, they would have before. Okay, well, as we wrap up here, maybe let's spend a minute or two just dissecting some of the results of the industry survey that is included at the end of this 2021 outlook. Um, Just a question to both of you. I mean, are there any responses to the questions that stand out as particularly telling in terms of how the industry is thinking at this point in the cycle or where we might be headed? I know there there is one in there um, 
about the specifically about the Biden administration as as the top geopolitical risk, um, which seems to have borne out uh, pretty quickly. Yeah, no, I mean, that was definitely interesting to see readers flag that um, as, as a top risk, um, you know, above above tensions in the Middle East, above, um, uh, you know, any, any number of other things. Uh, I, I don't know, one that, that caught my eye actually was, um, you know, our readers thought that nuclear fusion um, was potentially a, a technology to keep more of an eye on than direct air capture, which was interesting just you know, knowing the saga that, that nuclear fusion or kind of the holy grail that fusion has been in ener- uh, for energy technologists. But also, um, I mean, we're seeing companies spend significant money on direct air capture. Um, and so, you know, it was just interesting to see that, that uh, maybe some of our readers have a dimmer view of that technology than some of the companies that we cover. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. No, that that definitely caught my eye too. And one of the other ones that stood out was, um, you know, just this maybe again the, the view perhaps is a little bit um, more positive in the last few weeks and maybe at the end of last year. But when asked about you know which segment of their business is likely to be the most profitable this year, uh, new energy and renewables topped the list, right? And and in fact, um, you know, trading and petrochemicals, LNG, they all were above upstream. And historically, when we've asked that question in the past, I mean, upstream is, is always at the top. And so, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, to what, to what we're, Noah, you and I were talking about earlier about some of this conservatism still being there. You know, I think um, just mm-hmm. after the experience of last year, um, there there's kind of a sober reality that that's still being kind of digested, you know, um, and that, you know, while 50 or $55 oil is absolutely better than $40 oil and certainly negative oil, um, it's not... Um, you know, a windfall for the industry. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting as mm-hmm. well, um, especially in light of, you know, we had pretty strong support for, you know, basically kind of our oil price outlook, which is above consensus. Um, you know, we had a majority of people coming in around that sort of $60 a barrel range next year. And I guess I have a hard time believing that that these new energy um, uh, divisions are going to be more profitable than upstream at a, a $60 brand oil price. Uh, but I thought it was an interesting kind of glimpse into maybe some of the psychology we're seeing around equity markets right now in terms of, um, you know, this this exuberance for new energy types of names. Um, and, you know, maybe behind that is, uh, you know, besides the the type of momentum we're seeing on climate from, from governments, including the U.S., but I mean, I, I just wonder if maybe... Um, you know, it, it's a peek into the psychology that we're kind of overestimating where renewables and new energy are from a profitability standpoint within within uh, oil and gas portfolios um, relative to, to some of the tried and true stuff that's been making money. Um, yeah. In the past. And I agree because it and it ties into to the, like kind of the other one of the other questions that stood out was kind of asked about what do you think will be the most effective strategy right for the energy transition mm-hmm. and but what was interesting is that that diversification right so a mix of oil gas renewables was was the top response yet getting out of oil and gas altogether altogether and getting into renewables fell below just be an efficient producer and, you know, be a, 
uh, be a producer and go for like CCS kind of thing. So you know, it's a while uh, there does seem to be that draw. By no means um, is the industry looking to get out of its day to day business. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, even clashes with what companies are saying themselves. I mean, even mm -hmm. uh, you take a, a, a Total or someone like that, you know, who's got a, a, a quite advanced new energy strategy, and they're still saying, you know, these businesses are not cash flow positive until the mid 2020s, you know, if not even later, sometimes, because they are growing. Uh, and so, you know, it's, uh, it, it's just interesting to see kind of uh, that, uh, that mindset. I suppose. All right. Well, I think we have to leave it there for now this time. Um, definitely a lot to chew on in that outlook. There is a whole section on the energy transition that we didn't really touch on. But luckily, uh, in this very podcast feed, uh, our energy transition team uh, did a whole episode on the outlook for the energy, energy transition. So be sure to go check that out if you're interested in that. Um, but for now, um, I think we'll say goodbye. So thank you, Casey. Absolutely. Thanks. And thanks a lot, Noah. Thanks. And thanks to everyone for listening. To read more of our news and views and subscribe to any of our services and, and to check out the 2021 Outlook, go to www.energyintel.com. My name is Luke Johnson. We'll see you next time.